You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. It's a joy to have with us uh, a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Clark, who works with IFIS in, in Greece. And Jonathan is going to come and tell us a little bit about his work. And then after that, Thanos is going to come and pray and give us our missions prayer. Hello, good evening. Um, as you can tell from my accent, I'm from a little further south from here. Nottingham is our base. But for the last 10 years, we've been living in Athens. That's me with my wife, Dawn, and four children who are now 14, 12, 10, and 6. And we were sent from our church in Nottingham to go and work with university students. So I guess many of you will be familiar with the work of UCCF, Universities and Colleges, Christian Fellowship, Christian Unions, uh, here in the UK. I guess you've got a few students here. Uh, we're basically doing the, the equivalent of that in Athens. And the aim is that over the, through the, the time that we're there, uh, we're helping to establish uh, a movement of students all across Greece so that in every university there's a group of students who live and speak for Jesus. You might be wondering why we're in Greece. Um, the fault lies, humanly speaking at least, entirely at the door of the good people here in the front row, uh, Thanos and Maria. Um, Thanos invited us to go out and join him. Uh, he was working with the, the students in Greece um, a few years back, and we were invited to go out and join him. And most of the time, that's been nothing but a pleasure and a joy to be there. I'll tell you a little about the work in a moment. Uh, the reason why I'm in Scotland right at the moment is because a friend of mine who runs the the Cornhill course in Glasgow asked me to come and do some stuff in Glasgow on Friday. So I looked at the map and I thought, what's near Glasgow? And I saw Dundee and Aberdeen where I've got friends and thought, well, why not um, head over there as well? So thank you very much for your welcome. I know that most of you have got nothing to do with me being here, but thank you anyway for, for allowing me to speak for a few minutes. Um, I think it's a little bit tricky when you hear about mission work in other parts of the world because you just feel... It's so different. Well, I just want to encourage you that as you think about Greece, uh, Greece and Scotland are really quite similar in several ways. Perhaps you could put up the first photograph. Stephanie, we've got the similar kind of traditional instruments. Uh, next photograph, there are men in kilts. And finally, we've really got very, very similar beach culture. Um, so Scottish people, you're, you just feel right at home in Greece. Uh, but on a serious note... Um, and by the way, that last photograph there is the beach where we're going to be running a beach mission this summer. Uh, someone's got to do it. I know it's a tough, a tough gig. Well, as I said, we've been working with students for, for the last 10 years. In fact, Mirto, who's here on the front row, and, and Elpia that got, uh, escaped because she studied in Scotland. But Mirto, the, the Gikas eldest, uh, she was with us for a few years in Athens. Um, so if what I'm saying isn't true, you can just check that with her later. Um, let me tell you a little bit about our aim. We're very simply trying to train university students for a lifetime of following Christ. University lasts for four, five, six years in Greece. It's a short window of opportunity, but it's a significant one. As you know, that's a time of life when people often make their decisions and set their pattern of life and set their direction and form their convictions. So we've got a short window of opportunity to train believing students for a lifetime of following Christ. We're not really interested in just having fun as students or even having a, a marvelous student ministry. We're really much more interested in helping students at that age of life to make good decisions that will go with them for the rest of life so that when they're uh, in the neighborhood, in the workplace, in the home, uh, wherever it might be, they live and speak for Jesus. And we're trying to train people to have a, a character like Christ, to have competence in Christian ministry, and to have really deep convictions about the glory of Christ and the truth of his word that lasts into all of those areas of life forever. So that's the first thing we're trying to do. We're trying to train students for a lifetime of ministry. Uh, the second thing we're trying to do is we're trying to encourage people in mission. We're trying to support students in mission to students because students are the best place people to reach students. That's particularly so, I think, in a, in a Greek context where the university is a very separate kind of, of entity and... Um, Student life has its distinctive character and its own timetable. And so if students can live and speak for Jesus, they're the people that are best placed to reach other students with the gospel. The third thing we're trying to do, and this is really a much longer term aim, is that we're trying to be a blessing to the church 
so that as students graduate, it's the, the local church all over Greece that benefits as people um, take their place for the rest of their lives, for however many decades the Lord gives them, to be uh, people with conviction, competence, and character for the sake of the growth of the church. We're not just interested in student ministry for its own sake, uh, because God's primary agent of mission is the local church. And so we're trying to work with students so that the church will be encouraged and built up over the years to come. So that's our aim. Uh, let's move on briefly to uh, some of the challenges. And uh, I could speak all evening. I really could speak all evening. Um, but just a few of the challenges. Um, the first challenge is, is the numbers. Um, maybe that's a, a slightly dull challenge, but it just helps you to get a bit of a handle on the task. I don't know what things feel like in the, how things feel in the UK. Uh, we're, a small num- we're, we're small in number, aren't we? We, we feel like, as a church, we're, we're tiny and ineffective. But in Greece, as in really most of the rest of the continent of Europe, the numbers are way different. So to give you a bit of a picture, we think that in Greece there are getting on for 400,000 students, if you add up all the numbers on the official university websites. 400,000 students out of a population of roughly 10, 10 and a half million. And we're really working with about 100 Christian students across the country. There probably are more Christian students out there, but the, the people that we're working with, the people that seem to be kind of putting their hand up to live and speak for Christ in the university world, we think we're thinking about 100 people, give or take a few. So that's 100 people reaching 400,000. So the numbers are significantly against us. Uh, at the same time, we're looking at um, universities in roughly 20 cities across the country, towns and cities. And at the moment, we've got some kind of active witness in about seven or eight of those cities. So as you look at the map, there's a lot to be done just in the student world, never mind in the rest of Greece. So the numbers are a significant challenge. We're working with a team of about uh, eight staff, full-time and part-time, who are trying to encourage and support those students. So that's the first challenge. Second challenge is the students. Um, you might think, well, I go into student ministry if the students are a challenge. Well, you could just say people, it's not just students. But on the one hand, students who are from church backgrounds, from evangelical church backgrounds, have their own set of challenges. I don't know how much you've spoken with Thanos and Maria, but uh, one of the things that seems to be distinctive about Greek evangelical family culture is that it's, or student culture, I beg your pardon, is that it's, uh, it seems to be even more difficult to get out there into the wider world. Uh, People grow up with a very tight-knit community in churches and in youth groups and on camps, and sometimes that works against the idea of being out there for the sake of the world. I remember one conversation at a conference a couple of years ago, talking to a father who, I beg your pardon, to two fathers over two separate conversations. Both of these men had sons who were just about to start at university. I remember distinctly the conversations. Both of them said, almost word for word the same thing. Jonathan, what my son needs when he goes to university is that he not become friends with his fellow classmates, but just develop relationships with his youth group. Now, you can understand the logic behind that, but when you think about mission and the need for the gospel to cross on a bridge of relationships and trust, that's obviously quite a significant challenge. So one of the challenges with students is that it's, there's, a, there's a, a big step to take. There's a pain line to cross of deciding to and being willing to live in the world for the, sake, for the sake of the gospel. On the other side, student culture amongst non-believing students is such that, and, and I think this is true across much of continental Europe, more so than in the UK, is such that outsiders are viewed with, with quite a lot of suspicion. And that's very understandable. People trust people they know. Whereas I think in the UK, people will listen to an idea on the, base, on the merits of the idea itself, in more Mediterranean climates, it's much more, we'll listen to the idea on the basis of how much we know and trust the person who's got that idea. So if you're coming to communicate something about the gospel, for example, and you're completely unknown, there's no context of trust. Uh, people are much less likely to listen. So there's suspicion, there's, there's probably an anti-authoritarian kind of um, theme going on there, as in much of the Western world. So in the student world, there are these two big challenges helping believing students to live in the world for the sake of others. And on the other hand, uh, crossing that bridge, uh, crossing that gap of of trust and relationship. All of that takes time and patience. 
Uh, the third challenge, very briefly, is culture. And I think probably what I say here would, would go for, for most of the UK and definitely the rest of the continent of Europe. Uh, we all know, don't we, that there's this wave of atheistic secularism that's uh, swept across the continent. And so the, the, the received wisdom is that, that God doesn't exist or he's irrelevant. Uh, there's no such thing as life after death. Religion's debunked. There's really no point in talking about it. That's the kind of public discourse, isn't it? Privately, it's very different from that. Privately, people are, I think, still curious and it's not difficult to have conversations. But culturally, it's very difficult to stand up for something that most people assume has been thrown out of the window over the last century or so. Add to that the fact that Greece is an orthodox country brings its own particular challenges. And uh, orthodoxy is a, uh, a fascinating and unique cultural setup. Uh, Greece has been Christian orthodox for getting on for 17, 1800 years. So speaking about something that doesn't have the label orthodox, of course, is going to, to bring a challenge. And again, that just requires patience, uh, it requires skill, uh, perhaps a little bit of cunning to cross over that bridge. So all of these challenges are things that we're facing and we're trying to help university students to face as well. And then as I finish and before Thanos comes up, uh, let me just tell you a couple of needs. There are many that we could talk about. Let me give you two headings, just so it's easy to remember. Uh, we need your prayers. Um, whenever we speak to people, in whatever context, you can't persuade someone to become a Christian, can you? It's just not possible. And so we need you, please, to pray that God will soften hearts and open eyes and unstop ears. Um, we find that as we speak to people, in the first instance, there are many assumptions that stop them even listening, as I've referred to a little bit already. But uh, with patience, with perseverance, and as the Holy Spirit helps people to listen, it is possible to make progress. The thing is, it's a job that's going to take years. People don't become Christians, humanly speaking, overnight. They, they may do, but in general, that doesn't seem to happen. And so we do ask that you pray for us uh, as staff, the eight or so of us around the country. Pray for the students, the 100 or so that I've referred to, uh, that there'll be courage and perseverance and deep conviction. But pray to you that God will open the eyes and the ears of Greek students so that they will come into his family and into his kingdom. Uh, please do pray. Secondly, the, uh, the other need is for people. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And here the workers refers to staff, like myself, but also students. It would be wonderful to be working with a larger team across the country, we could handle another four or five staff workers across the, the whole of Greece. Uh, there's significant cities with no regular contact with staff to encourage and train. Um, we would love to have more people. And the challenges for that are obvious. Where do we find them from and how do we pay them? Uh, but the other thing is really it would be great to have more Christian students. Yesterday in Glasgow, I had coffee with a postgraduate student who's studying in Glasgow. And he did his undergraduate in Athens. And I never met him once. And I was thinking, wouldn't it have been great if you had been encouraged, maybe by your pastor or your family, to get involved in being active in witness as a student? Not say that I feel like I'm doing a better job, but say that the gospel is commended and witnessed to that much more effectively. It would be great, wouldn't it, if just lots and lots of students would have the courage and the confidence to come out of the woodwork and put their hand up and say, yeah, we'll live and we'll speak deliberately for the gospel whilst we're at university because of the opportunities that it provides. So do please pray for us, and uh, we would long for there to be more people, staff and students. I think I've taken up my time. Uh, I've done headlines only. I'll be hanging around for a bit at the end, but Thanos and Maria are hanging around for a good while longer than me, so please do keep asking them. Uh, thank you so much for your attention and for your time and for your welcome. Well, now let's turn again in our Bibles this evening to Paul's letter to the Philippians, where we're reading this evening in chapter 4, and you'll find the passage if you're using the church uh, Bible on page 1181, Ephesians, uh, Philippians chapter 4, and we're reading from verse 10 to the end of verse 22. It was pointed out to me earlier that the schedule announces that I would be preaching on Philippians 4, verses 10 to 30. So, let me just reassure those of you who may have panicked when you saw that, either that you bought a cheap 
discounted Bible that lacks the text, or perhaps I'd found the famous uh, and mysterious letter from the Laodiceans, just to say that there are only 22 verses in the fourth chapter of Philippians, so if you've got them, you are safe with the whole counsel of God. So, Philippians chapter 4 and from verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Remember what we've just read in Leviticus chapter 2. And my God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Now, this evening we are bidding a fond farewell uh, to Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, possibly with one exception, one of our most revered and esteemed members cornered me this morning and said I'd skipped over a couple of verses and urged me to return to them. So, we will just wait to see where we are all led in the providence of God. But as we come to the end of this short four-chapter letter, uh, we have often said that like all of Paul's letters, it breaks down into a fairly simple structure. It has an introduction, it has a central section, and it has a conclusion. Actually, it has a fairly long introduction in which Paul spends a good deal of time in chapter 1 sharing personal news as well as giving greetings to the Philippians. They have sent uh, one of their own, probably one of their elders or ministers, Epaphroditus, with a gift. They have been concerned for him. Epaphroditus has almost died in the process. There is much to catch the Philippians up on. And so, we have, uh, in some ways, the most extended of Paul's introductions. And then a long section from chapter 1, verse 27, through right to chapter 4, verse 9, that can be summed up in what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 27, that he wants to teach them about that manner of life which is produced by the gospel, the manner of life that is produced by the gospel. And now he's rounding everything off in chapter 4, verse 10 to the end. And interestingly, this may be one of the most difficult sections in Philippians to divide easily. Uh, preachers always want to divide passages, not because they have a, have a neurosis 
uh, about making two or three points, uh, but it gives opportunity for, for mental movement, that we are following the passage through from one stage to another. Uh, that there are moments when we can shift a little in our seats and, uh, and uh, have a moment of relaxation and, and ready for the next section. And if you want to do that, this is actually a very tricky section because you would notice as we read it, Paul keeps going back and forwards. Uh, it's like these old Western movies, you know, that used to have the sign that came up and now back at the ranch. He's talking about himself, he's talking about the Philippians, he's talking about the Philippians, talking about himself, talking about God, talking about the Philippians. And it all seems to be about this gift that they've sent him. And at times, it almost seems to be just a little disjointed. Paul has an extraordinary ability to soar in eloquence when he speaks. But here it's, uh, I'm fine, uh, thank you for the gift, but I'm, I'm really fine. And uh, you might almost think there was an awkwardness about it, uh, which suggests to us that there is something in the culture that puts the Apostle Paul in a slightly difficult situation. In his own commitment there is a commitment to serve the people of God without them necessarily financing His service to them. But here are these Philippians, and they themselves, obviously, from what he says in verse 19, they themselves are in need. He tells the Corinthians that they had supported Him when they were themselves in need and they've just sent him a gift. Some of you know cultures, uh, maybe have lived in them or known people from them. I think of a, a student, a particular student to whom I dare not say, that's a very nice tie, or that's a very nice watch, or that's a terrific-looking book, or where did you get that car? Without him tearing off the tie, giving me the watch, and inviting me for a drive in the car because of the, the, the culture that where, where anything is appreciated, the, the, the mores is then you want it, you can have it. And here is Paul in a situation where he has been in need, and the Philippians have been in need, and they have kindly contributed to his needs financially and he wants to thank them from the bottom of his heart, but the one thing he doesn't want is for them to send him more money. And so, there is this kind of delicate uh, toing and froing as he, in order to thank them, has simultaneously to explain his own situation, and in explaining his own situation, has to find the most gracious way of saying, please do not send any more money. I'm fine. And in the midst of this, he tells us some very beautiful things about what has really been the theme that he's been expounding. What is the manner of life of someone who has the mind of Christ? What is the manner of life of someone who has the mind of Christ? And so, in verses 10 to 13, he speaks about his concern for them and his contentment in Christ. And then from verse 14 to the end, he speaks about their concern for him and his desires for them. It is a beautiful, exquisite conclusion to a letter that has said so much about Christian partnership, Christian fellowship and a wonderful expression of the, of the open and easy two-way street in which Paul and the Philippians have been able to share together in the fellowship of gospel ministry. First of all, you'll notice in uh, verse 10 that he tells them that their concern for him 
has brought him enormous joy. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. And you notice immediately he said, at last. You know, you imagine old, uh, old Mrs. Makarios sitting at the back there who isn't quite so happy, and she's frowning. What is he doing saying, at last? At last? That's a bit of a cheek. You know, it's fine to say, thanks so much for your gift, but to say, at last you've given me a gift. Immediately he said that, which is true. A period of time of years has passed since they supported him financially. And so he adds this qualification by saying, at last you have shown your concern for me. I do not mean by that that you have had no concern for me, but that you have had no opportunity, you have had no resources to be able to express that care. Actually, it's a beautiful illustration of something that we all need to learn, that because somebody doesn't do something about it does not necessarily mean that they don't care. Of course, that may be true, but he was a situation of people who really cared but did not have the resources and the capability to do something about it. And so, Paul is profoundly appreciative of the fact that they actually cared, and the way in which he expresses it, he uses a horticultural metaphor. He says, now that care that you've always had has blossomed into a practical expression of it. So, there's a great lesson for us the manner of life that is taught to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ is one of permanent and unstinting care for our fellow believers, and therefore when the opportunity and resources are available for us practically to do something about it, to do something about it in a practical way. Care, that is to say, should not be limited to those who have the resources to do something about it. There is something in the strength and power of gospel fellowship that means even those who lack the resources may be praised for their care. And one of the wonderful things that Paul is doing in this context is is expressing this, this beautiful principle that because he had come to Philippi in order to bless them with the gospel, they wanted to bless him and to care for him in return. Of course, Paul was a preacher, and and I suppose uh, there's a fair amount in the New Testament of how, how we would apply that to our ministers. There's an astonishing amount in the New Testament about how you care for your minister how you bless him who has come to bless you. But the principle would apply to every gift, wouldn't it? If someone gives me a cup of cold water in the name of the Savior, if that's their gift and they have blessed me, I would be less than gospel-saturated if my response was anything less than to think, how can I bless them? We're not always so good at this. The evangelical church does not have a great tradition of this. We keep people humble by not thanking them in a radically unbiblical disobedience to the command of Scripture. The command of Scripture is if anything good is shared with you, it is your responsibility as a Christian, to ask the question, how can I bless this person who has so blessed me? And it's so possible, isn't it? Sometimes the most pious people become the most tight-fisted in this area. They wouldn't want to thank the person in case it inflated their ego. That's none of your business. Your business is to thank the person to ask the question, how can I bless this person? Some of you know the wonderful story about the great Victorian preacher C.H. Spurgeon, 
who, when he wasn't preaching at the weekend in London, was all over the country preaching, and he usually traveled on a first-class ticket in the train in the days when there were three classes, and the days, some of you don't remember, when there was a corridor down the train, and a miserable-minded treasurer of a small Christian organization was walking down the corridor, saw Spurgeon sitting up in his first-class carriage, relaxing, reading some book, threw open the door and said, it's Mr. Spurgeon, isn't it? Well, Spurgeon knew what was coming. He said, yes, C.H. Spurgeon, at your service. Mr. Spurgeon, said the man, I am up at the far end of the train, meaning in the third-class compartment, looking after the Lord's money. And Spurgeon, who was an exceedingly quick-witted, quick-witted individual, said, well, I am down at this end of the train looking after the Lord's servant. I remember giving a children's address in a church once and uh, told the children that I had been on the train from Glasgow to Edinburgh, and one of our elders had come on. He'd seen me in the, in the second-class compartment as we walked on. He said, I've got a first-class ticket, and then he came down and sat beside me in the second-class compartment. And I told the children, wasn't that a Jesus-like thing to do? I remember somebody coming to me afterwards as though you could miss the point really well and saying, Jesus would never have been traveling first class. And I'm kind of tempted to, you know, tough it out and say, he would be if you bought him the ticket. Somebody made him a robe that was so precious that Roman soldiers preferred to cast lots over it. And you see what that reveals. Happily, I cannot remember who it was. It's not anybody who moved to Dundee, but you see what that reveals. It reveals a kind of spirit of narrowness. Jesus would never travel first class. So easily reveals the spirit that says, he's not really worth first class. I would buy him a second-class ticket to Edinburgh. And the tragedy, so you would. That's the tragedy of such a situation. You would do that instead of saying, I want my Savior to fly first class, as it were. And we can treat one another the same way. Um, when did you, let me put it very bluntly, when did you last thank somebody, really thank somebody for some service that they did for you, a, a menial service? When did it last enter your mind, this person has blessed me, how can I bless them? Not, how can I pay them back? Not tit for tat thing. The big issue is this, how can I bless you? How can I bless you? That's what your ministry is. Your ministry, whatever it is, is a ministry to bless others. And you see, when that's the spirit, which it was in the case of Paul and the Philippians, there's no, da there's no danger of us getting swelled heads, is there? Whatever your gift is and you share that with someone else, you serve them, you say, I am your servant for Jesus' sake, and uh, they bless you in return. Your head's not going to swell, because all you were doing was seeking to bless them as you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so, this wasn't, this wasn't monetary payment for Paul. This was Paul rejoicing in the fact that these Philippians had received the gospel of Jesus Christ and their salvation through his ministry, and there was, was two-way traffic. They were asking the question, how, how can we bless Paul? Someone comes to our church to serve us, 
we dare not ask the question, how cheaply can we get them? We must ask the question, what can we do to bless those who have come to bless us? This is, this is what is so different from the world's order of things, isn't it? We exist to be this kind of blessing. And the apostles' experience of their concern for Him and His concern for them brings Him such joy. But He has this concern for them. He wants them to know that He is content. I'm content, he says. This is, this is code language partly for saying, please don't send any more money. He says, I'm not saying this to you because I'm in need. Don't misunderstand me because I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now, notice carefully the language he uses. Um, some of us, at least in some respects of life, are more able to live in a mess than others. Me, I can live surrounded by chaos and, and get on with my business. I know other people, everything needs to be in exactly the right place. I've been watching some Hercule Poirots recently, you know, Hercule Poirot, absolutely everything is to be aligned in its right place or he cannot operate. The little gray cells fragment. And we're different in that respect. He's not speaking about that kind of contentment. He's speaking about learning contentment. And actually, the language he uses is language that was used in the secular world of initiation into the mystery religions. He's saying there is a secret of spiritual contentment into which we need to be initiated. And it's very interesting what he goes on to say. He says, so I have learned, I've been initiated into the secret of contentment by learning how to be content, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether I'm in plenty or in want. Now, those are two opposite situations, aren't they? Um, and I think what he's hinting at is this. You have not learned contentment until you have been exposed not only to either of these, but probably to both of them. Because when we lack, we become discontented. And you don't think for a minute, do you, that people who have it all are contented? Having it all is a vast test of your contentment. Because in either case, contentment means for Paul that his sense of poise and adequacy is not to be found either in whether his poverty and hunger is being dealt with or what he's going to do with the plenty. I mean, isn't, isn't this a kind of truism among us, isn't it? We see somebody winning, you know, five million pounds, and we say to ourselves, how amazing it is that people think, if only I won five million pounds, I would be content. And we know they won't find contentment in the five million pounds, because that's not what five million pounds does. Any more than poverty necessarily breeds discontent for a believer. Why? Well, because of this famous Philippians 4.13, because I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. He doesn't mean that He becomes omnipotent, does He? He doesn't mean that. What He means is I I have the strength to face all of these situations and know that in any one of them I can be content because my contentment is not resourced by my situation. It's resourced by my Savior. I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. It's independency from circumstances based 
on a Christ dependency. You're a young man who was a very, very outstanding golfer. I played golf with him once and experienced it to my cost. And much as I admired it, I noticed he'd something written on his golf ball. It's every golf ball he played, you know, golfers mark their balls so that they can tell whose ball's what. And uh, he had four thirteen, four colon thirteen on it. And I said to this young man, young Christian man, uh, I said, what does four thirteen mean? He looked at me as though I'd come out of the ark. You know, what kind of minister are you? And you don't know what 4.13 means. He said, it means Philippians 4.13. I thought, oh, does that mean you're content if you lose your ball or if you lose the match? Uh, what do, you know, what does it mean? I mean, this is one of the most favored texts in the Bible, isn't it? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, have a little poverty have a little pain, have a little hunger, then we'll see. The thing about contentment is that you never can say, I'm really a contented kind of person until you don't have. And then you'll find out. I mean, it's like so much in the Christian life, isn't it? People tell us, you know, this is my character. I'm not really like that. I'm really like this. I acted out of character. No, you never act out of character. You act out of the strength of your character or the frailty of your character, but you never act out of character. So, when I lose it, when I'm discontent with my poverty or with the difficulties or when I'm discontented because although I've masses, I want more because it's not making me really content. What's the root problem? It's godlessness, isn't it? That I'm not bowed to the sovereignty of God and recognize that uh, He's always testing me. He's always probing what's really in you, Ferguson. What's really in you? Have you been initiated into the gospel wonder of being content? Because you see, that's, that's what then enables the kind of detachment that, that Paul had. Uh, and, and this is what gave him such strength. My friends, what will give us, what will give us strength in our witness in a hostile world is this kind of detachment that because we have attached ourselves by faith to Jesus Christ, all of those things that attached themselves to us have fallen out of our hands. And we see them, as you remember Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, they're all, they all look like trash to me now by comparison with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so, out of what seems to be a, like a purely human transaction and dynamic, a, a, a lovely fellowship of Paul and the Philippians, he's really teaching them the most profound lessons, isn't he? And, and as he always does. I think I've said before, you know, we, we often say to ourselves, it must have been fantastic to have Paul as your minister. probing, probing, getting down deeper. How real is the contentment? So, he expresses his concern for them. He wants them to know that he's appreciative of their gifts, but please don't send any more because he has found real contentment in Jesus Christ. And then he turns in verse 14 to the end to speak about their concern for him and his desires for them. It was good of you to share in my troubles. Uh, not another church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. And it's kind of masked really in our English translations naturally because translators want to use a variety of words. But, but these verbs are this root word, koinonia, it's, it's fellowship, it's, it's partnership, it's, it's what he's been speaking about right from the beginning. 
And he's saying, this is, the, this is the reason why I'm so grateful for you, because you have shown the concern for me of partners with me in the gospel. And this has been a partnership of, of giving and receiving in both directions. I have given to you, and you have received, and you've given to me, and, and I have received. Now, what's kind of fascinating is that they've given and received different things. Um, if I can put it this way, um, he's saying, by God's grace, I used my calling and my gifts to bless you. And what I'm so grateful for is that in your concern for me, you have used the different gifts you have had to bring blessing to me. God has not designed the church so that we bless one another with identical gifts. It would be, you know, that would be boring. You know, if your gift was preaching, you know, can you imagine how boring it would be? You know, we'd all have to listen to each other preach, and, uh, you know, nobody would be working the sound system. And he's exalting the, the gifts because he wants to exalt the Lord Jesus who has given them those gifts and who has, who has caused their concern for him to blossom. And he's, he is, he's committed to this principle. Remember how he speaks about in Ephesians 4. He says, now, the church of Jesus builds itself up in love only when each part is doing its work properly. So, this isn't a matter of me saying, I wish I had that part. This is a matter of me saying, how can I play my part properly in order to build up the fellowship in love? And so, this, this is kind of amazing, really. You know, this is the when you get to this point in Paul's letters, you want to move on to the next letter, don't you? I mean, it's also kind of just bread and butter. And yet, Paul can't touch things that are bread and butter without saturating them with, with Christ-centered thinking. I remember uh, way back in the 60s, as students, we all learned from Francis Schaeffer's marvelous little essay entitled, No Little People. There are no little people in Christ's church. People doing with the gifts the Lord Jesus has given to them what He wants them to do. So that how we serve in the church is is not a matter of some kind of hierarchy uh, with the people who appear in public at the top. There are no little people in the church of Jesus Christ. There's people with different gifts called to use those gifts for the blessing of the fellowship to which they belong. And so, says Paul, your concern for me has touched me deeply. And I have this concern for you, this desire for you. Notice what it is. He says, you sent me aid again and again. I'm not looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. Now, that's what ministers and elders do, incidentally. They want to see credit added to our accounts because of the way in which we use our gifts for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, or, to put it another way, um, Paul is not so interested in what they've sent. What really interests him is that they're sending it as an expression of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, and that's what he is all about. The other things are, they're, they're, they're decoration of the gift. It's what God has done in their hearts as the result of the ministry of the gospel in their lives. That's what he's looking for. And he was always looking for this. He was always looking for signs of spring. And not only had he seen signs of spring here, he'd seen signs of blossoming. Not only 
was that the case, but the evidence of it was that they had shared his suffering. You notice that? He says in verse 14, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Um, you maybe need to be from the west of Scotland to be familiar with the expression, I'll go halfers with you, when neither of you has enough. The wee boys, you know, you can't, you, you can't buy it, you see, but somebody says, I'll go halfers with you, and, and together you can do it. And that's, that's what he's saying here. He's saying, neither of us is sufficient in ourselves, but we've gone halfers. God has made us sufficient marvelously in this way. And, and the way in which you've gone halfers with me is that you've shared my troubles. What a thing to say, uh, to share somebody's troubles. You know, um, we see somebody in trouble and we do a runner down the, the right wing sometimes, don't we? Rather than share their troubles. Not sympathize with them in their troubles, apparently, but share their troubles for fellowship with them in their troubles. So, no wonder his desire for them is that they may bear more and more fruit for Jesus Christ. Because you notice how he sees this gift. Uh, that's so interesting in the providence of God. We read uh, Leviticus chapter 2, didn't we? That uh, sacrifice that it wasn't an atoning sacrifice. It was, a, it was a gratitude sacrifice, really. And so, he uses that language here. He says, your gift through Epaphroditus are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And so, you see, he's saying to the Philippians, this is the reason I thank God for you, because my desire for you has been fulfilled in you, that the big issue for you is answering the question, what is pleasing to God? That's the question. You get up tomorrow morning, that's the question to ask. You face a situation, a difficult situation, that's the question to ask. They're not horizontal questions. They're this vertical question. What is going to please God in this situation? How much the church of Christ would have been preserved if we had asked this question? Not, I like this. I don't like that. He likes him. She doesn't like her. Now, how can we please God? And they'd pleased God by this marvelous blessing that they'd given. And Paul wants to assure them, you notice at the end, in verse 19, he's not unmindful of the fact that they have needs. He had needs, they had needs. In their need, in their poverty, they had given to him in their need, and he wants to reassure them, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. He has been filled, he says in verse 18, I am amply supplied. And now he uses the same language, and you will be filled according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Paul does this, doesn't this very Paul, as we would say today. He does say, your needs will be supplied. He says, listen, beloved, God will do it, and He will do it according to His riches. God doing it, but God doing it according to His riches, and I'm doing it in accordance with His riches in Christ Jesus, in glory. So, no wonder He closes the way He does with a gloria, with a greeting, and with a grace. Oh, he says, first of all, let the glory be to God forever and ever. Second, greet all the saints. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings. 
You notice back to this, just subliminally, he's gathering them all together now. He's saying, now we're, we're saints together, we're one together, we've been seeking unity together. And then he adds this, especially the saints who belong to Caesar's household, send greetings. Isn't that something? This is Caesar's household. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. He is saying, Philippians, just take this in for your encouragement. I'm in Rome, almost certainly. And there are those in Caesar's household who belong to our Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't very long in the broader scheme of things before the early Christian Tertullian could write his apology and uh, say to the Roman Empire, we're in the army, we're in the forts, we're in the city, we're in the positions, we're in the houses. The only things we've left to you now are your temples, because the kingdom of Jesus Christ from its highly unlikely beginnings is spreading everywhere, and the gospel is running throughout the world, and it's prevailing. And so he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. No, as we've noticed in passing the commentators and scholars, all of different guesses as to what the great theme of Philippians is. Uh, is it joy? Well, there's certainly joy in it. Is it partnership or fellowship? Well, there's certainly partnership and fellowship in it. It's joyful and it's partnership full and fellowship full. Uh, but he ends this way because right at the heart of it and more than anything else, it's Christ full. That's what he had said in chapter 3 and verse 10, as the now old New English Bible translates it, all I care for is to know Christ. And here it's so obvious. Christ has filled them with gratitude. Christ has filled them with love. Christ has filled him with a wonderful sense of partnership in the gospel. Christ has filled them with a care and concern for these Philippian Christians. It's the one thing, whatever else happens, that they share is Jesus Christ. And when that means everything, or when He means everything, then fellowship flows like this. Each part of the body does its work properly, and the fellowship builds itself up in this kind of love. So, let us fix our eyes on Christ at the end of this Lord's Day, and look to be content in everything during the course of this week in God's providence, that we may serve Him well. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this amazing little letter to the Philippians that we've spent many weeks now trying to study together for its focus on Your Son, our Savior. We thank You that though He came from the riches of glory down to the impoverishment and humiliation of the cross, that You have lifted Him up, that tonight He is highly exalted that He reigns in heaven and upon the earth, that His kingdom is extending, that more and more are being drawn to faith in Him. We rejoice even as we think of the tough times in Athens and throughout Greece and the struggles of the church in our own land here. We thank You that there are nevertheless more Christians on our planet than ever before in all the history. And we thank You that just as from these tough days and small beginnings, the gospel spread, that You were able to come again and enliven Your church and make us, as we've been praying already this evening, salt in the earth, 
the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. And so we pray that you would more and more make St. Peter's like the Philippian church, focused on Christ, caring for one another, concerned with the mission of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we ask that you would, with the indelible pen of your Spirit's work through the Word, write the lessons of this part of Scripture into our hearts by your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.